Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Did you grow up watching Arthur on PBS or do your kids watch today? The beloved children's series ends next year after 25 years on air and online. Coming up, we talk about the impact of children's programming and we hear from one of the voice actors who played DW, Arthur's sister. First, we're taking a break from the news to talk about entertainment, specifically what shows we should check out this fall. Who better to ask than Eric Deggins, NPR's TV critic. Eric is joining us now on Zoom. Eric, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure and so fun to hear from you when you're on. And our listeners can join, too. Is there a a show that you're looking forward to watching this fall or one that's binge-worthy? 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at where we live. When I was growing up, Eric, it was a big deal to see in the fall what the, the big three networks were going to premiere, but now we have so many more choices out there. You're <laughs> so dating yourself what... with that big three networks. <laughs> I, I know, right? <laughs> I noticed you were silent, uh, Eric. <laughs> yes, 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 youngsters, there was a time when there were only <laughs> about four networks and then a few UHF stations that we could watch. But yeah, you know, we're in a point now where all of the major uh, media companies are aligning themselves to feed material to their streaming services because that's what the industry is interested in now. So, <clears throat> so the result of that uh, for consumers is that you just have this massive deluge of material coming at you every week on uh, 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 several different streaming services. From my perspective, there's never been a better time to be a fan of television, but it can be a lot. So I'm here to help. <laughs> so, so speaking of back in the day, I remember watching Wonder Years and now there's a Wonder Years reboot. Tell us about it. I know, I know. So so um, and, and this isn't necessarily a new concept. You know, ABC tried to reboot um, the film Uncle Buck as a series with black characters. So the Wonder Years, uh, they're rebooting the Wonder Years with black characters. But the difference is that um, this has some thought behind it. And I think it's a very well done, I've only seen the pilot, but I think it's a a very well done idea, which is to say that the original Wonder Years with Fred Savage was kind of the story of baby boomers in their youth, right? Looking back and seeing all the things, all the formative things that made sort of that generation what it is. And now uh, we have a chance to 
tell a story that's similar, but tell it about a black family in 1968 in uh, in Alabama. So this the the, the lead character is 12 years old in 1968 in Alabama. Uh, his the voice that we hear that narrates everything is Don Cheadle, who's an amazing actor. He's really good at uh, he's very funny, but he's also he can get serious when he needs to. Uh, and he's authoritative enough and recognizable enough that you pay attention when he's talking. And uh, Dulé Hill, who folks may remember from the West Wing and Psych, uh, plays the character's dad, who's a, a music professor and uh, and a musician who just happens to have an R&B hit at the time. Uh, that the that the series starts, and uh, I really enjoy watching this because you get a look at what it's like to grow up black. Uh, you get a look at what black culture is like in an upperly mobile uh, black family at that time. I know it's a that's a pivotal year, so we're, I'm sure they're going to talk about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights struggle and the riots that were going on in certain cities over that struggle. And, but it's also a story just about a kid who has a crush on a girl in his in his class, and he wants to he wants her to notice him. So it's it's a great little combination of storylines. And that's on ABC? Yes, that's on ABC. Now, speaking of the streaming services on Hulu, Dope Sick, uh, which sounds uh, really timely. I remember talking to the journalist Beth Macy when her book came out of the same name, Dope Sick. Uh, can you tell us about this series? So Dope Sick is, is an, another really interesting, um, it's another really interesting series that does a couple things at once. Uh, on uh, the surface, what it's doing is it's outlining how the opioid crisis came to overtake America and particularly how it came to cripple working class, mostly white communities uh, in, in, uh, in, in rural, rural or undeveloped uh, uh, areas. So uh, Michael Keaton is brilliant as this doctor who's working in a small mining town. He loves his job. He loves the people that he's taking care of, but he's kind of uh, pushed and convinced into uh, prescribing Oxycontin uh, for less major injuries. There was a time when opioids were only used to, to treat people who were kind of at the end of life or had really severe medical conditions. Uh, but uh, the, 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 um, uh, the, the trick about Oxycontin was that the, the company that made it uh, told doctors that it wasn't addictive and encouraged them to prescribe it for less severe injuries, uh, uh, back pain, back injuries, things like that. So that so Michael Keaton plays this doctor who cares so much about his patients and he's he's sort of pushed into prescribing this drug to them. Of course, it works for a while, but then people get addicted and a prosecutor start to notice this wave of crime going throughout their communities uh, that starts to take hold as more and more people get addicted to these prescription drugs. And then they also show um, how Richard Sackler, who at the time was running Purdue Pharma, was the, 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 the series depicts that character pushing the company to uh, convince doctors uh, to prescribe this drug more and more and more so they can make more money uh, based on uh, not a lot of evidence. And it turns out that all these claims about it not being addictive, of course, were not true. Uh, it, 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 it not only is a great depiction of all the different elements of the opioid crisis and how it overtook America, it's also a really good depiction of working class white America and these towns that are struggling. Um, we, we saw so many people trying to understand in the wake of the success of Donald Trump, 
you know, why were people so upset about America and where America was going? This series tells that story in addition to telling a larger story about op the opioid crisis. You've hooked us with that description, Eric. I wanted to play a, just a clip from the trailer of Dope Sick on Hulu. People all across this great nation are in pain. They have hard lives. Are you still sore? I can't work here no more. I'll be all right. And we have the cure. This new miracle drug, OxyContin. You will be the largest sales force in pharmaceutical history. Make your doctors feel special. Take them to expensive dinners. Bribe the receptionist with a mani-pedi. Whatever it takes to win their trust. Your most effective talking point are these magic words. Less than 1% of people get addicted to OxyContin. That's not possible. And Eric, in that trailer, we hear the voice of Michael Keaton. What are some other big name actors that are that are in this series? Um, well, um, uh, Rosario Dawson plays uh, one of the uh, prosecutors uh, who um, was trying really hard to develop a case against uh, Purdue Pharma uh, for what it was doing. Uh, but what um, sort of stands out here is the work of some actors who are not as well known. This guy named Michael Stuhlbarg, who people uh, would know if they saw his face. He played uh, the crime boss in Your Honor, the Showtime series. He played uh, a funny uh, alien uh, in uh, Men in Black 3. Um, he played uh, he played a bad guy in Boardwalk Empire. Here he is amazing as Richard Sackler, um, the the head of Purdue Pharma, uh, who was uh, from uh, for many years just focused like a laser on the idea that um, you you know um, these these pain medications could be prescribed for a wider range of illnesses, and uh, and 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 in that way it would make the company uh, so much more money. Um, and, and Caitlin Deaver, who uh, a lot of people may know, she was on shows like Justified. Uh, she's been in some great movies. She does a great job playing this young girl who um, uh, works in the mines and injures her back and winds up becoming addicted to OxyContin. And, and so these stories, while they're also individual stories, they're about a larger tapestry of people who were struggling with this uh, addiction as it was sweeping across the nation. And I think uh, if you really want to understand like the, the, the progression of how it came to hobble America, this is a great series for that. And again, uh, based on the book Dope Sick by journalist Beth Macy, I want to tweet out a link uh, to our conversation with her uh, just a couple of years ago when that book came out. You're hearing on Zoom today, Eric Deggins, NPR's TV critic, is critic as we talk about what's coming up uh, this fall, shows to watch that are binge-worthy. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. And so let's talk about uh, Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, any shows that you feel like people should be on uh, our listeners' watch list? Well, I'll talk about two shows. One, because one show that they're um, sure to be hearing a lot about is The Morning Show, which is um, it's, it's sort of showcase drama featuring Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon and Steve Carell. And it's about um, these people who host this fictionalized um, morning show. I, I'm, I'm not uh, that big a fan of this series, but I recognize that a lot of people will be talking about it and it's going to um, drop its first episodes uh, tomorrow. Um, uh, it's going to pick up with this idea that um, we saw Jennifer Anderson's character kind of quit 
the business at the end of the first season, spoiler alert, <laughs> and they figure out a way to rope her back into hosting the, the morning show. And um, they um, at the you could, at the last um, uh, minute, they kind of rewrote some of the scripts to include the, the covid uh, crisis. So you also see them trying to cover the beginning of uh, of the covid pandemic. So that's something that people are going to be hearing a lot about. I'm not as big a fan of that show as some people are, but I know, I know people will be hearing about it. The other Apple TV Plus show that I'm really interested in is called Foundation, and it's based on this book series that was written by the legendary science fiction writer Isaac Asimov. And anybody who knows that book series, it's very sprawling. It's about this huge galactic empire um, uh, where a scientist uses math to prove that the empire is going to fall into ruin. And he's trying to convince the empire to do things that will shorten the amount of chaos that comes after the empire ends and nobody wants to believe him. Now, this was a sprawling book series and I can't, you know, I still, I, I've seen several episodes of this. It's very well done, but I just can't imagine taking that huge series of books and, and compressing it into even a limited series, but somehow they managed to come up with a great storyline that mimics a lot of the things in the books, but adds a lot of new material. It was uh, put together by David S. Goyer, who people might remember, uh, he's written uh, uh, superhero movies like uh, Batman Begins and and um, and Man of Steel, and here um, they use a lot of uh, cutting edge special effects to tell this story about uh, a huge empire that um, is is floundering because it has a lot of people who have lost faith in science. <laughs> and uh, how, 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 yeah, yeah, how timely a story could that be? And the funny thing is, like, I went back and I reread uh, the first book in the Foundation series before I watched these episodes, and it feels like that book could have been written yesterday in terms of talking about anti-science, talking about the ways in which people lose faith in science and how that can uh, be a, a critical problem for society uh, if they lose sight of, of uh, the scientific method and the ways in which science can enrich our lives. So this this is, I think this is a, a great story. And if you like a science fiction yarn, you'll probably enjoy it too, but it is very complicated. Um, so, so um, you know, uh, spend some time watching very closely. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the return of American Crime Story impeachment. Here's a clip. I'm kind of in something. And yet you feel lonely. Yes, affirmative. Well, that's no good. Tell me about him. It's, uh, it's just he's, um, unavailable. Someone long distance. Someone from work. Someone important. Is that why they sent you here? And so that clip you're hearing characters playing Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp. But what's your take, Eric? Is this worth a watch? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it is. Uh, I, I uh, enjoyed it. And, you know, I was somebody who was a journalist when a lot of this went down and I covered the media end of it. So I knew uh, I thought I knew the story very well. Uh, but one thing I didn't uh, know quite so well was the relationship between Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky and how that fed into uh, what eventually happened and what the public came to learn about the affair between Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. Um, uh, there's a lot of great performances here, even amongst, um, you know, the supporting characters. But I think Clive Owen, the British actor, does a great job as Bill Clinton. He plays him as as uh, 
he, 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 he doesn't play him as a cartoon. He doesn't exaggerate the Southern accent. Uh, you get a sense of him more as a man than a cartoon, which is a really um, uh, smart choice. And, um, and Sarah Paulson is amazing as Linda Tripp. She does a great job, not only inhabiting this character that a lot of people think they know, but uh, making her empathetic and humanizing her, even while showing her doing things that are reprehensible. Like they don't pull punches and showing how unlikable Linda Tripp was and why so many people who work with her couldn't stand her uh, and and how she betrayed Monica Lewinsky by secretly taping their phone conversations and then turning those phone conversations over uh, to investigators. Uh, But but Sarah Paulson inhabits her as a person. So you still get a sense about why she might have made those choices. And you have a little bit, I mean, there's a scene where she is watching Saturday Night Live with her grown children. And John Goodman, uh, the big beefy male actor is playing her. And uh, she wasn't expecting it. And you see her, the hurt in the character's face. And even though you know that Linda Tripp has done some terrible things, you kind of feel for her in that moment. And it's a great way of talking about how we all cracked all these thoughtless jokes about Lewinsky and Tripp and Bill Clinton and, and Hillary Clinton without realizing that there were human beings on the other end of those jokes and that they could um, they could have a deadly sting. Let's talk about some uh, binge-worthy shows that really focus on privilege. Everyone's been talking about the Netflixes that share this. Also, HBO's White Lotus. Which one do you want to start with first, Eric? Um, well, uh, we could talk about the chair. The chair is uh, a Netflix series starring Sandra Oh. That's about um, uh, a um, uh, a woman of color who winds up taking over as dean of a literature department in a college, and she she winds up having to manage all these uh, old, out of touch professors who are offering these courses that the kids aren't that interested in, and and she also has uh, a male professor under her. Um, uh, who, who's working under her, who she also has feelings for, romantic feelings for. He's floundering after his wife died, and and he's also not living up to his potential as a teacher. And, uh, you know, as somebody who teaches myself, I teach as an adjunct at Duke University, like so much of what they depict about academia is so on point. So I really enjoyed that. Um, now, The White Lotus is is was sort of the, I, I think it was the streaming series of the summer. A lot of people talked about it. It's about all these um, rich folks who go to a resort in Hawaii and they, um, they, they have all of these experiences sort of rooted to the dysfunction that's connected to how they live and how they think about things. A lot of people liked it. I have to say, I am not one of those people. I really, um, I had a problem with the eventual message of the series. Um, uh, you know, I don't, Again, spoiler alert, at the end of the series, you know, these rich people are kind of exploring how dysfunctional they how they feel their lives aren't working or how dysfunctional their lives are or problems in their lives. But in the end, they don't really change their behavior that much. Uh, and, And in the end, the people who pay the price for their their problems are the people who don't have money and power who are around them. And 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 for me, I, I felt like a lot of the wealthy characters were kind of cliches that I um, that I had seen before in other productions. But the the, the working class people uh, who were part of the stories were much more interesting, much more authentic. But we spent less time with them and they all wound up uh, kind of poorer for the experience of having 
you know, interconnected with these wealthy people. I felt the ultimate message of the show was not something I wanted to encourage or wanted to spend eight episodes with, but a lot of people liked it. So, um, you know, check it out and decide for yourself. Most certainly the great thing about today's media environment is that there's so many high quality shows that, you know, you can find things that resonate with you and they might not resonate with someone else. And even criticisms can give you a sense of how a show that you might like um, might be something that you'd want to check out. So certainly check it out. Uh, but I was not a big fan. Uh, I do think that one show that we should also mention that people are looking forward to is the third season of Succession on HBO. Uh, you know, you talk about rich people. Uh, this is a show about a very dysfunctional family that runs a media company. And uh, it's picking up right after a cliffhanger. Again, spoiler alert, uh, you know, uh, one of the siblings, um, you know, did something that that uh, might threaten the, uh, the, the patriarch's control of the company. And the show is going to pick up right after that. And you have a sense that you're going to see this, this conflict between, uh, you know, one of the kids and the patriarch of the family. And I can't wait to see it pick up. You know, this, this new season was delayed uh, by COVID, but in, in October, we're going to finally get to see the third season of Succession. Nice. And I know Eric Deggins, uh, NPR's TV critic, uh, NPR.org, just uh, published its fall TV, TV preview. So we're going to make sure that we tweet out a link to that. So many more recommendations uh, from you. Uh, before we let we let you go, coming up, we're going to be talking about the children's television series, Arthur, ending after 25 years. What's your take? Is this something that your kids watched? This is definitely something that my kids watched. And, you know, three of my four kids are completely grown and out of the house and even out of college. So <laughs> that lets you know <laughs> okay. how long ago um, uh, they watched it. Um, one thing that I would say is that even though a show stops making new episodes, that doesn't mean that the show is going to disappear. I mean, people will still be able to see Arthur and there's going to be 25 years of this of the show that people can see. Um, it is unfortunate that they won't be making new episodes because there's because one of the things that I liked about Arthur is that it occasionally talked about really contemporary subjects, you know, um, uh, lesbian parents, uh, same sex marriage. Um, you know, it, it, it helped kids process things that were happening in modern life in a very gentle and welcoming and, 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 and really wholesome kind of way. And, and I think that's what you lose when you stop making new episodes because they're not able to talk about the new things that we're encountering in life that kids may need to learn how to process. But, um, you know, in a, in a sort of glass half full kind of attitude, we, we can at least celebrate the fact that we have so many seasons of this wonderful show that, um, you know, generations of children will find and, and, and be able to experience. They can start watching the first season and by the time they get to the end, they'll have aged out of the show anyway. <laughs> so you know, uh, at least we at least we can say that. Eric Deggins again, NPR's TV critic. Uh, so fun to hear from you, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Up next, we talk about the wonderful kind of days in the world of the very popular aardvark, Arthur. The animated children's series on PBS will end next year after 25 years. Did you watch Arthur growing up? Do your kids watch it today? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Where are my Arthur fans? We want to hear from you as we talk about the public television series centered on an aardvark, his family, and other animal friends. Its final season ends next year after 25 years on television. I know my daughter watches it on the PBS app on her tablet. You can join us whether you watched Arthur or your kids watched the show today. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at where we live. Joining us now on Zoom is Ginger Brown. She's a children's television producer, a professor at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, and she was a producer and executive producer at Sesame Street for 25 years. Ginger, welcome to our show. Uh, Thanks for inviting me to be on your show, Lucy. So you know how powerful and impactful children's programming can be. When we talk about uh, Arthur, tell us a little bit about why this show lasted as long as it did and and why it had such an impact. Well, I think it lasted as long as it did because people really loved to spend time with the characters and uh, in part because the writing was just so good. You know, it appealed both to kids and to their parents and it managed to stay attuned to what are the current issues of children. Um, It was also, you know, it's also aware of itself. Uh, Arthur, you know, talks to camera and sets up what's going to happen over an episode. So um, I think that there's a little bit of an irreverence there, even though the characters are just really likable. Um, In addition to that, uh, the writing is great. And I think that WGBH, um, the executive producer there, Carol Greenwald, who was a creator, and PBS uh, really worked hard to, you know, continue to make it viable on the PBS network. Uh, Mark Brown was a, who wrote the original Arthur uh, books and also illustrated. Uh, when we think about when children watch characters in a show and they're animals, does that help connect children to them that uh, no matter what they look like or uh, where they're from or what race they are, uh, maybe they see these uh, characters on, on this animated show and they can connect with them? Is that, is that part of it? I think it's part of it. It's part of what keeps it evergreen. And um, as uh, Eric said earlier, there's 25 years of this, 249 episodes. And um, it uh, has just resonated for that whole time. And you can watch season one today and still have it be as fresh as it was 25 years ago. Um, 
in terms of the characters and the anthropomorphizing of aardvarks and bears and monkeys and rats and bunnies, um, it just is a very diverse cast. And I think that children, uh, the core audience is 48 years old. They, um, they can see themselves in one of those characters without those characters actually being, you know, human and representative of, of humans. I think it's, it's much more inclusive. I wanted to talk more about some of the topics that the Arthur series tackled. Let's first play a clip. Uh, this is very timely as we are living still in this pandemic where character Francine is teaching Muffy the importance of mask wearing. Let's hear it. If you're going out in public, you 100% need a mask. But why? I'm not sick and I don't like how they look. First of all, you can be sick and not know it. You can have the virus and feel totally fine. Second, without a mask, you could spread it to someone who will get really sick, like Buster, who has asthma, or Mrs. McGrady, who had cancer, or your grandparents, or someone you don't even know. But shouldn't they wear the masks? Of course, but it doesn't help if you're sick and you don't wear one. The only way to keep everyone safe is to wear a mask. But they make my nose sweaty. If we all do our part, we can get rid of this virus. And they fog up my sunglasses. Just think of all the people who look up to you. Your fans. You're right. I am such a role model. Daddy, I'm going to need a mask before we go out. Could you possibly locate some sort of... I took the liberty of having some made. Hand-dyed and embroidered. Only the finest for you, Muffin. Ooh, Trey Chic. Ginger, it sounds like this is a much-watch episode for some <laughs> adults, right? <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. You know, I love the way that the writers uh, took her from being resistant to being um, a mentor and a model. That's so empowering for kids. Let's talk more about some of the topics that Arthur has uh, taken on over the years, some other uh, controversial topics at, at times, too. Yeah. So, um, you know, Arthur took on day to day or and continues to take on day to day children's concerns like first day of school and bullying and nosebleeds. But over the years, they've also tackled diabetes and dyslexia cancer and autism and they've managed to do it in a in a really smart and appealing way and it's interesting that what we heard uh, earlier from eric too and this idea that like it speaks to children but it's also something that adults are sitting there watching as well and, and it can start a conversation at home ginger Yes, it can start a conversation and it's a really wonderful tool for parents who want to start a conversation, especially if their, you know, four to eight year old or slightly older kid um, is wondering about a, a, a topic that you're not really sure how to, how to open up the discussion. Arthur's there. <laughs> yeah, and, and Eric had mentioned, uh, you know, featuring gay and lesbian couples on the program and how it was trailblazing. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, um, it's, yes, Mr. Ratburn gets married. Uh, you know, uh, one thing that I do want to bring up at this point is a, a lot of Arthur is problem solving. And, and when Mr. Ratburn marries his partner, of course, they get it all wrong until the very end. And then it's, um, it's not a big deal. Um, I think it's 
really wonderful and kudos to GBH and PBS um, for broaching some of these subjects that um, may or may not be easy for 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 uh, families, but are important for kids to to hear and to see and to parse. I mentioned that you were an executive producer uh, and producer at Sesame Street for more than 25 years. And so when yeah. you're talking about, you know, issues that um, can be difficult and maybe not everyone agrees with that being presented on a children's program, you know, what, what kind of conversations are happening behind the scenes? Uh, and, you know, how do uh, shows like Arthur um, confront those critiques uh, and you know, because, because we know even with mask wearing, you know, how divisive that has become in our country. Well, I can tell you, you have to stay true to your brand and you have to know that kids are sponges. And and if you can give them the right information, then they're going to learn. Um, and they're le- much less judgmental than uh, we adults are and have less of an opinion about some simple things like mask wearing. Um and so I think that that is what Arthur's done and, and that's always what Sesame Street has done. And um, if it's the right information, um, then you can, you can really stand behind it. Uh, certainly, I don't know if, if uh, Arthur um, had as much um, pushback as Sesame has for some of the things uh, that it has modeled. Uh, you know, in South Africa, there's an HIV positive Muppet, and that caused a big stir in the United States for some reason. Um, but uh, Arthur does have one band episode that is was uh, about uh, Vermont. It was uh, actually it's not Arthur; it's Postcards from Buster about Vermont and a same-sex couple. And if you look at it, you you have to wonder why. But it just, I guess, struck the the critics the wrong way. You're hearing Ginger Brown here on Where We Live. She's on Zoom with us, a children's television producer, professor at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. Again, she was a producer and executive producer at Sesame Street for 25 years. We're talking with her as we focus on Arthur, which was, I think, now the longest-running animated series on television, ending next year after 25 years. You can join us if you've watched Arthur. Is there an episode that stood out to you when you were a child or even one that you watch with your kids today? The number 888-720-9677. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, Ginger will stay with us. And we're going to hear from uh, a Canadian voice actor who was one of the voices of DW, Arthur's sister, back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about Arthur, the lovable aardvark in the popular kids show on PBS. Next year will be its final season. It's the longest running animated series in television history, 25 years. Uh, with us on Zoom, Ginger Brown, a children's television producer and professor at NYU. And she worked on Sesame Street uh, for many years. And joining us now is a voice that was part of the, the Arthur series, Jason Schwinn. 
swimmer, podcast host of Finding DW, the vo- and he was a voice of DW on Arthur from 2002 to 2006. For people who haven't watched the show, DW is Arthur's little sister. Jason, welcome. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. And Ginger, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So- so nice to hear from you, uh, Jason. And I mentioned that you're a Canadian voice actor. So how did you land the role of DW? Um, it, I was just in the right place at the right time. My mom has a long commute to work and uh, heard an open casting call for uh, to try to find talent to be voices on Arthur. And uh, she thought to herself, well, I have an exuberant, loud child who might be interested in this sort of thing. And uh, so we just called in and uh, I got cast in the room. Uh, My voice just happened to be what they were looking for. And so from 2002 to 2006, you were DW. Yes, I was. Yeah. What was that like? I was great. I mean, I I was the type of student where, you know, I I just I, I wasn't super... I was always kind of daydreaming. It wasn't always the most attentive student as I could be. So I was looking for excuses to get out of class. So I was excited to be able to leave early to be able to go and record. Uh, you know, it was the super fun after school activity that I got to do um, that I, I look back on fondly. I mentioned you're also the podcast host of Finding DW. So you were one of eight boys who at one time were the voice. Yeah. Uh, that's right. And chosen I, to play. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I, I think I might have lost you there for a moment. Um, yeah. So my podcast is all about how uh, recently I learned that DW had only been played by male voice actors. And I decided it would be fun to try to track them all down to talk to them about the experience and, and to maybe learn something along the way. I love that. <laughs> and I listened to uh, one of your episodes this morning, really well done, where you actually talked with Mark Brown, who was the creator of Arthur, uh, about his idea. Uh, but uh, tell me a little bit more, like, why is this character a four-year-old girl, and why has it been played by boys? I think, you know, there's a there's a tradition in, in cartoon casting where, um, you know, the character you see in the cartoon isn't necessarily voiced by uh, the same gendered actor or even the same age i mean for example um the rugrats are voiced by women or um you know dw's voiced by young boys i think it's pretty common and i think that um when they were originally casting the show um the person they ended up going with happened to be a talented former voice actor named michael callows and then you know the nature of that is such that you know as these boys would go through puberty uh, they would look for a voice match to replace that person. And while they did um, audition uh, girls to play the part, I think they just kept casting guys because it sounded closest to Michael's performance. Were you sad when your when your time ended? Yes and no. I think at the time I I'd received so much attention uh, that it was actually quite overwhelming. It was sort of difficult for me to find interests outside of acting and uh sort of engage with people on a, on a regular level, because as you can imagine, you know, the show was so popular when I got on the show um, in season seven. Uh, so people at my, in my elementary school and high school were, you know, treating me like I was this celebrity. And, you know, that's something I'm still trying to unpack. And, and part of the reason why I decided to, um, to start this podcast at all. 
Again, we're hearing Jason Schwimmer, podcast host of Finding DW. He was the voice of DW, Arthur's little sister, from 2002 to 2006. You can join us as we talk about the legacy of this animated series on PBS, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Michael's calling in. Michael, what did you want to share? Hi. Um, this is of a parent. I'm, I'm now 60, so my kids are young adults. But um, children's TV was a big part of my life uh, as they were kids. And what I saw um, first about Arthur, I I always thought it was wonderfully done. Um, The writing was strong, good characters, excellent artwork. Um, But they, all three of them in their own uh, stage outgrew Arthur, I would say by like, second or third grade um and that to me it seems a natural progression to to move away from you know there's a certain amount of preachiness to arthur where you know you're being told you know the the right way to do things and and to consider moral questions um but arthur was very much succeeded by spongebob which was much more anarchic and much more um, irreverent, um, and and certainly didn't have a you know a, a pedantic um, attitude toward viewers. So and and then after SpongeBob, um, sadly with our son, he he gravitated to South Park. But oh. <laughs> I almost feel you know that when you speak about aging out of uh, a show, that there is this progression from the comfort of a world of strong values and, and, you know, admirable characters to getting more and more, um, I don't know, uh, irreverent might be the, the adjective. Well, I loved hearing from you, Michael. Thank you for calling into the show. Ginger Brown, you're still with us. How do you respond to Michael's comments? Um, well, I have a couple things. Um, first of all, um, It's really wonderful. It sounds like his kids were exactly the sweet spot, you know, four to eight-year-old kids watching the show. Um, I do think that any educational television show, especially the ones on PBS, um, they're based on a curriculum. And, uh, you know, um, Arthur certainly was about literacies, um, both social-emotional literacies and, and basic literacy, like learning learning to read and problem solving. And when you work that way as a producer or a writer, you do want to hit whatever the thing is, that piece is supposed to be at, like very, um, very literally. And that at times can sound a little preachy on um, Arthur, but it's fleeting and it's very clear for kids who, you know, when they're four-year-old, kids are, are pretty concrete. They, you really have to say exactly what you want to tell them in addition to showing it to them and telling them a story about it. So um, I don't disagree with him, um, but I think it serves a purpose and it's part of why the show is so popular. Uh, Jason Schwimmer, uh, we were talking with you about what it was like to uh, be a voice on this series for several years. Have you rewatched some episodes where where you are, are voicing DW? What's that like uh, to hear and watch today as an adult? It's very surreal. I mean, when I started on the show, I kind of stopped watching. I feel like I just saw how the sauce was made, and then you know, I was I just moved on to other shows. 
Um, so I've been watching more Arthur now than I ever have in my whole life and just sort of re-falling in love with the show and kind of discovering why people are so excited when they find out that I was DW, you know? I want to play a clip uh, where we hear you, uh, Jason Schwimmer. Here it is. How are we going to do Irish step dancing if you can't even do tap? It's not my fault. It's the sneakers. These tacks I put on the sole don't make a good sound. But you didn't do any of the moves. Didn't you learn anything from those index cards I gave you? Of course not. I can't read. That's you saying, of course not. I can't read, Jason. Yeah, that's me. Um, that's me acting alongside a very talented voice actor named Bruce Dinsmore, who I had a chance to speak with for my podcast. Wonderful. Again, uh, that podcast called Finding DW. You're the podcast host and you spoke uh, to the other voices as well as Mark Brown. We'll be sure to, to tweet out a link. I wanted to take another call from a listener. Julia is calling in from Trumbull. Hi, Julia. Hi there. How are you? <laughs> Do, doing well. What did you want to share? Okay, um, I have um, I have two daughters, and they're 23 and 27 now, but um, when they were much younger, Arthur was really one of our favorite shows. I think we found the show before we even found the books. And um, initially, I think what, what drew me as a mom to the show was the gentleness of Arthur, that he was a boy who, you know, I guess this was before the term toxic masculinity existed, but I really liked that character. But as my daughters got a little older, Sylvia was such a spunky um, girl. And, you know, she was one of, uh, you know, later we had Angelica, who was awful, but also pretty spunky, and Junie B. Jones. And Sylvia um, was just great. She had so much life and energy. And we even had a DW birthday party one year for one of my girls. She wanted it. And um, there was another, when one of my daughters turned six, a boy in her class had the same birthday, and so we read the. There's an Arthur book where two characters have the same birthday, so they were really formative in my kids' growing up years. Well, thank you, Julia, for sharing that with us. Uh, Jason, did you want to respond to what the caller shared? I, just that I love hearing stories like that. It makes me feel very proud. You'd said earlier that, you know, the fact that you're a part of this show and now that it's ending and how people respond to you when they hear that for several years you were the voice of DW. So what has that been like to unpack? It's I, I, like I, I'm, you know, a young person trying to figure out my life and my creative career. And so this project was just something that I felt really compelled to do. And I'm so fortunate that I had the time to do so. It's been so amazing to connect with people uh, like the previous caller or people reaching out to me over DM or Twitter. You know, I've had people message me about what I'm doing or how much Arthur's meant to them that have just been really sweet and kind of made me cry. And I don't know, it's, it's just been a really wonderful uh, project to work on. And it's been so great to connect with people and to share, you know, my love for the show and to give something back to the show that's ending. Right. And when you spoke to the other people who were the voices of DW, did they have a similar experience as you? Yeah. I mean, what I learned was that, you know, we all had this big thing happen to us uh, when we were kids, but we all kind of reacted to it differently. And, you know, from the first uh, former voice of DW who went on to now work as a life coach to um, one who works in the auto uh, industry, um, to some of us who went on to be actors. I mean, it's really fascinating to see sort of how we all reacted to this shared experience. 
Uh, Ginger Brown, you know, you're still with us. And I wanted to ask you before we end, we've got about uh, three minutes or so. When we think about how children consume uh, media, uh, they're not watching PBS on, on the, the television at home, but in, on a tablet and how that has changed programming today. Well, I mean, uh, that's I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, and that's part of, I guess, the point of this conversation today is that even though Arthur is not going to be produced on a regular basis anymore. It's still going to be seen often. Arthur's not going away. And um, it will, I'm sure, be part of WGBH's on-demand and digital-first content. Um, you know, if you look at their we- at the Arthur website, there's just a whole lot of games and fun things to do, and the episodes are there. And um, it makes this show this wonderful show available to kids of all ages on phones and on tablets and at home and probably streaming i know there's you know the youtube children's channel is building some arthur content into it so uh yeah kids kids access screens everywhere and i have a feeling that arthur will continue to be really popular and that's a good thing to hear. And I also love the fact, uh, Ginger, that schools are able to access these episodes, uh, you know, online and use them using learning modules. I know Sesame Street is very big on that. Yes, yes. Uh, there's a lot of outreach that happens with these um, early learning children's television shows, both animated and live action and Muppet based. And it's a wonderful way to support both schools and for uh, some of us who have had kids at home for the last year and a half um, to be able to provide them with content that you can also have some kind of support to reinforce what the lessons are as a parent or a teacher. Yes, as a parent of two children, uh, PBS Kids app was a godsend <laughs> in the first uh, <laughs> few months of this uh, lockdown. So I appreciate it uh, as my personal experience. But Ginger Brown, what a, what a pleasure to hear from you uh, and to hear a little bit about your career. You know, a longtime producer and executive producer of Sesame Street. Uh, now you're prof- a professor at NYU. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's good to hear your perspective, Ginger. Thank you for coming on today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And Jason Schwimmer was here, uh, the voice of DW, Arthur's little sister from 2002 to 2006. He's got a great podcast, a host of Finding DW, where he talks to other people who uh, played DW through the years. And what a lovely conversation you had with Mark Brown, the original creator of Arthur. I encourage listeners to check that out. Thank you, Jason, for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tess Terrible produced today's show, also an Arthur fan. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can listen to Where We Live anytime. Just download us on your favorite podcast app. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>